Leading up to the city council hearing, Kahan received a good deal of attention from the local press, including the Baltimore Sun, WYPR, Baltimore's NPR station. At the same time, he did ostensibly start to offer more specific details about the plan. So because all of the land Kahan wanted to ostensibly develop was city-owned, he wanted and needed the city to turn the properties over to him. Once they agreed and those initial steps were complete, Khan wanted to organize a task force for each city district to determine precisely what would be built on the parcels. And then the request for proposals would go out on ideas sanctioned by the community. The general idea was still the same. He was proposing to develop 70 sites across all city council districts, but there was a major new detail. He wanted the city to pay him and his team three and a half million dollars to execute the planning process. It was an unusual proposition, to put it mildly. But in Baltimore, it was at least plausible. Twelve years before, Mayor Sheila Dixon had pledged millions of dollars in tax subsidies to a New York orthodontist who had partnered with a car dealer and the editorial director of Essence Magazine to pitch a half-billion-dollar redevelopment of Poppleton, a bedraggled neighborhood north and west of downtown. For more than a decade, the project went nowhere, until construction finally began with another developer joining in 2017. But the original developer's lack of relevant experience had never been a significant issue. They got their subsidy, and the mayor got featured in Essence magazine. Kahan's plan was very different. For one thing, he was asking for cash up front, something not even La Cite, the Poppleton developer, demanded. It's July 27, 2017, and we're outside City Hall. Baltimore building Baltimore for Baltimore. That was the TBR slogan, and that is what is embroidered on the t-shirts that several volunteers are handing out to supporters who are here for Kahan's presentation to the City Council's Committee on Housing and Urban Affairs. Inside City Hall, at least 50 people wearing the TBR-branded t-shirts pack the chamber to support what they thought was the first step in getting Kahan's ambitious plan through the city's legislative process. Good afternoon. Councilman Bullock, thank you for the uh, invitation, and council members, thank you for, uh, uh, I guess, the joint invitation, because when Councilman Bullock reached out to me, he mentioned uh, that uh, this would be something that all of you would like to hear more about, so I very much appreciate all of you and your interest. Um, with that being said, what I'd like to do is, um, uh, I'd like to make a few statements on a, on a personal note um, of things that I've encountered that you all may have heard, and I wanted to dispel any notions that may have existed. You it know, happened hey, so quickly. Uh, I mean, I was standing off to the side, still tweaking with my audio levels, when Kahan, who's standing at the lectern in the center of the hall, facing eight to nine city council members, he started to address what he thought was the elephant and, in the room. Uh, recently, you know, there was also this, this uh, you know, uh, I mean, I find it sort of humorous, but I should put it out there, 
that uh, there was some comment about me being an FBI agent or an undercover FBI agent or whatever. So I am, a, I am actually FBI, but that stands for For Baltimore's Interest. <laughs> so I just want to put that out there as well. Um, Apparently that, this rumor, which I had heard for over a few months now, had reached a tipping point because Kahan no longer thought it could go unaddressed. And to make this type of an announcement, I am FBI for Baltimore's interest, in such a public forum in front of members of the city council at a city council hearing, that was bold, if not farcical. My, my uh, experience, my resources, my relationships and other things could be very useful in working to move this city toward uh, its uh, potential. And As per usual with Kahan, during the presentation, he made big claims about his wealth. He mentioned the unverified sale of his smart home company to a Silicon Valley venture capital firm. At another point, he claimed he would put in $50 million of his own money. He even went so far as to boast that he could raise $1 billion. I can raise a billion dollars. That's not a problem. Uh, Kahan projected a map of Baltimore City on a screen. The map featured 70 white dots, which represented the 70 sites out of a total of 62,000 publicly owned vacant properties he claims to have considered. It looked at first like he was revealing the proposed development sites, which would be routine at this stage of the process, but he wasn't. So one of the secret sauces or one of the, sec one of the proprietary, as I discussed with Chairman Bullock, aspects of this project, so we're not just putting all of our work out on the street for anybody to hijack, is we went through these 62,000 plus parcels, pared them down to 70 of the most equitable and bankable you know, uh, you know, sites. Those white, those white dots within a, um, a half a mile radius, we went off based off TOD approach, within a half a mile radius is where those sites are. So you've already secured sites in multiple districts? Well, we haven't, what we've done is because these are all city-owned property, I don't know if you're aware of that, but all of these 70 sites were, are specifically city-owned um, know, property, we have identified them. I wouldn't say secured. So can you share with, uh, with the And that's another reason why. The specific ones in our district? That's a, that's a, until we have a confidentiality agreement in place and until we have you know, that solidified, we won't be disclosing arguably probably the most key part of our, one of the key, key parts of our plan, then there, there would be no reason for us to not just hand it to somebody else to do. Right, so, I mean, we, he refused to reveal the sites of the locations he was planning to develop. Here was a relatively unknown developer who was proposing a staggering $10 billion development. Yet the most important detail about the project was unknown to everyone, including the elected officials whose support he needed. So the dots you said, just to go back, just to make sure I heard it mm -hmm. clearly, um, it's not exactly that site that it's sitting on. It's within a half a mile of there. You got it. Okay. So um, in my district, which I, I know inside out, um, where one of your dots is currently sitting, there's actually no uh, city-owned property within um, a half a mile of, of that dot. Um, my that district was Councilman Isaac Yitzi Schleifer, who was questioning the validity of the sites that Kahan had seemingly selected. My concern here is the methodology, and, and I, I Here is another council member, Eric Costello, voicing his skepticism about the locations. Similar to Councilman, uh, or Vice Chairman Schleifer's uh, concerns that he raised, uh, one of these dots in Otterbein uh, is surrounded uh, by completely residential, uh, that's all privately owned, so development there is, is impossible. It will never happen. Um, so that's why I'd like to see... 
Kahan claimed to have already strategically targeted the 70 sites that he, along with the city and private developers, were going to develop. Yet the dots on his map were being called into question. Was it possible that Kahan was making all this up? So the first thing is the site selection projects process was the most arduous process to date. We had to literally identify, first of all, all of the databases, all the information that we could get on property location. Then we had to go by and do, um, you know, listing searches, data, area data information, um, you know, um, capturing. We had to, uh, we did site surveys. We talked to local businesses. We literally did both a virtual and non-virtual um, complete dissection of every single property in every single, every one of those five in each district that we chose to come to that point of picking what we felt were the um, ideal, optimal initial 70. Now, Kahan was a master at rambling and bullshitting. He knew how to speak the language and use words and expressions that at least to most sounded appropriate. But the more time I spent with Kahan, the more I questioned the veracity of the things he said. I knew he was prone to exaggeration and embellishment, but whenever he said something, it always crossed my mind. Is he just making this stuff up? The $10 billion figure that Kahan touted was a perfect example. Not only would a $10 billion development project be by far the largest project in the city's history, it would be one of the biggest in the entire U.S. And even more baffling, because there was a total of 70 sites, that would mean that each individual development would equate to a little over $142 million. To offer perspective, 414 Light Street, a 44-floor high-rise in downtown Baltimore, started construction in 2016. That was estimated to cost $160 million. And once complete, it would be one of the tallest buildings in the city. In essence, Kahan wanted the city to pay him, an unknown developer, to plan for 70 developments that would each cost roughly the same price as one of the tallest buildings in Baltimore. But with all that said, these things didn't seem to matter to many people. Although there were a few skeptics on the city council, many were open to Kahan's bold plan. And even more profound, he had many members of the community who were passionately supporting him. Remember, there were over 50 people in attendance all wearing branded t-shirts in support of Kahan and the Baltimore Renaissance. A few of them were allowed to speak. You know, I plan to get behind and get my thousand plus members behind anybody that not only supports, you know, obviously our organization, but the Baltimore Renaissance because they're trying to bring change, which is why you got somebody from Virginia with 50 to 100 people here. He's got people excited because they see something that, wow, there could possibly be change. Everyone is afraid of change, of course. But at the same time, without it, how would, how would we even know what is going to happen or what could actually takes pla take place? So my whole objective, my whole reason for actually being here is just to say, like, we really need this. Baltimore really need it. Our children, they out here in the streets getting shot up. Some of them getting bullied. But if we can have change, someone from the outside 
looking inside to us saying that we can make this change together, why not give it a chance? What else are we going to lose by giving Mr. Dillon a chance to make Baltimore City better? I came to know Kahan. He came to me, we broke bread, we talked, and my first impression was, whoa, this guy's coming up with this big plan. I don't see this how this is going to work. Then I got to know him, and I saw how sincere he was. That first impression, I'm glad I didn't stick with it because I got to know how he was and, his, and saw his vision. Bring it into your heart to see how you can work with him because you have a lot of other people here who feel the same way that you can help. Thank you. Thank you. Well, first of all, I'd like to thank everybody for being here. So let's give a hand to everybody who's here. And this is Kahan speaking to a group of his supporters at a cocktail party reception after the city council hearing. The reception is being held at the same downtown high-rise law offices where he pitched his plan a few months before. This plan has gotten this far not because of any politician, not because of any media source. It's gotten here because of the people that have gotten behind this plan. And I said, I'm not going to... In my opinion, the people who bought into Kahan and who had a great deal of enthusiasm for what he was doing, they seemed to fall into three categories. Number one, there were people who were just naturally gullible, sadly enough, and their eyes lit up at the promises Kahan was making. Number two, there were people who were community-oriented and who were desperate for any type of investment in their community. And then there was the third group of people who saw the possibilities for them and their businesses to make money from being part of this plan, which was being promised as the largest development project in the city's history. In a perverse way, Kahan was a rather dynamic leader. Similar to the tactics of a cult leader, Kahan harnessed people's desperation and gullibility and was able to convert ordinary members of the community into dedicated and loyal followers. So Khan was obsessed with having the appearance of being powerful. He made all of the people on his team sign non-disclosure agreements, and he forced them to call him Mr. Dillon. See, whereas before, Khan had two or three people who would be with him during his meetings on Fridays, following the city council hearing, he felt he needed to make his presence more pronounced. Aisha, Hashem, Terrell, John, another John, George, Sean, Daryl, all people who cruised around with him on Fridays. It was a posse. Once, when I was with Kahan, we walked down Pratt Street, which is a busy road that crosses through downtown and has a decent amount of foot traffic. He had his seven-person crew, his team members, as he called them, run security detail around him. I, I mean, I, I kid you not, he had three people strategically placed in front of him, one on each side, and two following him. When one person at one time got out of line, he actually barked an order at them to fall back into position. It was like he thought he had an army. Kahan's obsession with power even trickled down to Yegley. Not only would he insist on calling me a quote-unquote member of his team, even when I corrected him every time and telling him that I was working independently, on numerous occasions, Kahan would try to lecture me about being present for every one of his meetings. It was as if he thought I was an employee of his or I had some sort of obligation to his business. It was very weird and controlling. 
This could be like our deep throat spot. When we go meet, F meet uh, the FBI guy who's gonna tell us all the information, right by the chicken coop. This is Michael Anft, a longtime Baltimore guys, journalist awesome. who met with Yeagley in a park in hey, Baltimore buddy. County. So did you ever hear of the rumor of him being an FBI informant? I heard that up front from someone early on, and I was skeptical about it. And to some degree, I still am. It's a really hard thing to prove. But I do know that there are people in City Hall that are convinced, including in the mayor's office, that he is the person who wore the, wear, wore the wire or, or uh, somehow had something to do with someone wearing a wire in the Nathaniel Oaks case. Now, Oaks Michael was, was working on the story as a freelancer for an online publication. He had met with and interviewed Kahan on two separate occasions. Over the next month or so, Michael spoke with Yeagley by phone and shared some of his findings. I don't know whether he's just a megalomaniacal nut or whether there's something deeper here, but I'm asking this last set of questions. Like you said, I was, I'm not expecting, but, you know, I'm basically asking the same thing over and over again. Why are you so tight-lipped about your investors? Why don't you give us you know, some idea of what there's hundreds of pages of research and analysis on Baltimore development say, you know, you know, even asking them questions like who, you know, what schools of thought in urban planning are you, you know, are, are we going to see in this plan? He can't answer any of these things. It's, it's nuts. I mean, it's one of those, you know, usually, you know, if you get these stories as a journalist and you're kind of like, oh, you're rubbing your hands together a little bit. Oh, we'll get to the bottom of this. But with him, I'm just kind of like, <clears throat> this is just one slimy dude. And it could be worse than that. It could be the slimy FBI. Talking to people at the Mount Vernon Lee Chamber of Commerce. Michael had been digging deeper into Kahan's professional life in Virginia. Kahan was the board chairman at the local Chamber of Commerce in 2005 through 2007. This is Michael reading his notes from an interview he conducted with a person who was on the board with Kahan at the time. He was always very evasive about what projects he was working on. His business had no transactions, no corporate basis for region. The chamber did its background check. I've never seen anything concrete come out of Kahan. Maybe he's changed. Um, he's a very divisive figure at the Chamber of Commerce. It took us a couple of years to recover from that. He tried to make it more political, more on the Democratic side. Uh, made it harder for the chamber to pass as nonpartisan. <clears throat> Nobody wants to say anything bad about anybody else, but I'd really be cautious about doing any business with Kahan. Um, his family used their money to buy access to politicians, um, which is exactly what he's done here um, in Baltimore. Um, and played a sense of self-importance, no concrete details for any plan that he's tried to develop that we know of. Michael had reached out to people at the Fairfax County Development Authority, the public entity chartered to promote business and investment development in Cahan's hometown. According to a spokesperson there, no one at the organization even knew of Kahan. So, you know, I've, I've gathered you know, the pictures coming together of where he's been and all that. I'm still kind of at a loss you know, for, there, there's like almost eight, nine years there where he doesn't seem to be doing much of anything. And it just kind of makes me, you know, it's a little weird. Michael never wrote the story. In a text he sent to Yeagley, he said, 
I'm putting the story aside. It created too much stress, which was starting to leak into other parts of my life. At this point, I'm just willing to write off the time and to swallow all the information, you know, until there's another shoe drops or there's some other hook, some other reason to write about this guy. Because I think, I think he is, you know, a bomb waiting to go off in one direction or the other, whether he's an FBI guy or not. There are two types of trust in this world, 100% and 0%. Kahan said this maxim to Yegley in one of their earliest conversations. It was an implied loyalty oath. Kahan looked at me as one of his team members. He wrongly thought I was one of his loyal followers. It was as if I was his personal biographer and that I was working to promote his personal brand. So when he found out I was interviewing other people for the story, including the journalist Michael Amft, he was suspicious and, quite frankly, incensed. Richard, do cease and desist any and all actions and communications relating to TBR. Any further actions from you relevant to TBR that aren't first discussed with me will result in the indefinite death of the possibility any and all rekindling. He wrote me a long, garbled, and quite frankly, poorly written email demanding that I stop covering the story. In his mind, I no longer was an ally. I could no longer be trusted. Because I was talking to other people about the story, his story, without his knowledge, I had broken his implied loyalty oath. Yegley never received any form of legal notice, but the message was loud and clear. Kahan thought he could bully anyone who didn't agree with his narrative. So there it was. I was cut off from Kahan, and this was October 2017. We didn't speak from then on, yet even though I had spent several months with him and his team, I had more questions than when I even started. I mean, if he was an FBI informant, I guess to a degree, this would all kind of make sense. But if he wasn't, that I didn't know what the hell he was doing in Baltimore. I mean, one thing was for sure. In my mind, only in the most topsy-turvy of worlds would Kahan Dillon have the actual capacity to spearhead a $10 billion redevelopment project, let alone a $10 million project. Yet the fact that he was able to garner so much interest for his proposal was very telling for the city of Baltimore. Big House is produced, written, and edited by Richard Yagley. Narration by Stefan Sabatich. Music by Kenji Ueda. Additional writing by Rafael Alvarez and Edward Erickson. Additional field production work by Malachi Brodus, Alan Irwin, and Tarek Mansour. And additional marketing services by Jessica Yen. 